right, all right, all right. Welcome back. If you're a veteran and you're struggling or feel like you are leading a path towards the darkness, stop and think about those who are around you. Think about how they truly value you, how they will miss you. You are not alone. You need to talk to someone. Someone will listen to you. If you feel like you'll be a burden to someone or you don't feel like you should weigh that, put that weight on your inner circle, call the hotline at 988 and take option one. Don't make a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If you're a new listener, thanks for joining us. Please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast apps. And don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel at the underscore Misfit Nation. It's the underscore Misfit Nation. This will keep you up to date with our latest news, episodes, and of course, our great guests. Our next guest has been a leader for decades, first in uniform for 20 years as a combat veteran Navy SEAL, and then in commercial business. He was a successful account manager, account vice president and portfolio manager with United Bank of Switzerland for many years after leaving the Navy, and then a marketing and business development senior vice president for a billion dollar a year company. So without further ado, let's welcome U.S. Navy SEAL veteran, master of disruption and sought after speaker, Marty Strong. How are you, Marty? I'm doing good. Nice intro. Thank you. Thank you. You made it easy. It's spelled out pretty easily. Uh, it's always good to have veterans come on the show, especially ones that are doing well and still reaching back out to other veterans and make sure they're doing good. So, Marty, if you don't mind, tell us. I mean, I gave a blurb about your your life. If you don't mind, give us a little more background from as far back as you want to go to how we got to where we are now. Sure. So I uh, I started out in Nebraska. I was born in Nebraska, raised most most of my young life in Nebraska, but, and then I moved to Japan for four years. My father worked for the Department of the Army. And then my parents got divorced. I went back to Nebraska for a short period of time. And uh, my mom kicked me out of the house. And so I went to live with my dad, who had been relocated to Honolulu, Hawaii. So went to high school there. And then he was relocated again to Detroit, uh, basically supporting the um, what became the Abrams Tank, that program. So I graduated from Gross Point South, Michigan, the Gross Point point that the movie was made out of or made about and went into the navy at the age of 17 did uh 10 years as an enlisted seal and 10 years as an officer in the seal teams wow that, that's remarkable right there <laughs> then uh, you mean your afterlife uh, you transitioned into the corporate world pretty easily i'm guessing after the seals yeah i like that afterlife that's a that's that's a good <laughs> I should use that as a podcast name. Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, so I, I didn't transition easily, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And, and at the time when I was getting ready to retire, especially in the elite forces, <clears throat> I don't care what service you're in, uh, fighter pilots, et cetera, nobody wants to stop doing that job. They love it. They love being around the guys that they've been working with and working for and, and, the, and the people that they've been leading, if they're leaders. It's it's a um, I think it's the same thing I've read about, you know, the NFL players, NBA players. You know, it's you don't get it anywhere else in life. You don't get it in any other kind of commercial enterprise. So you, you might be able to try to you know, recreate it if you have uh, an opportunity to do that. But it's just not the same. So, you know, that that kind of transition is, is going to be hard for anybody and everybody. And I think the longer you're in the service, the more difficult it is and the more elite, more kind of brotherhood bonding the unit is the more difficult it is. So I didn't know what I wanted to do. And because of those things I just said, nobody talked about or thought about what they were going to do. Right. You're going to just keep doing it forever. 
but you know everybody gets hurt and you start you know missing a few a few steps and you're slower than the 21 year old you know i mean i tell you it, it's it's like it's like professional sports you know you come in there you know in my case 17 18 years old the average is probably around 1920 and you're a high speed low drag you know efficient athlete you're probably a collegiate level um fitness and you're carrying gear and you're learning all kinds of crazy stuff and you're flying out flying out of helicopters on ropes and you're jumping out of planes and you're doing all this crazy stuff and it's really good for a while and then you hit something fall off of something smack into something get knocked out break something and suddenly you're 29 years old and you look like you've been in you know the nfl in the 1930s without helmets or something you're you've got stitches and broken body parts and 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 you know you start to get into that 30 31 age and a couple of guys just pass you on the road on the run that morning <laughs> morning morning <laughs> you know they're you know they're just telling you that, that you better watch your six because we're catching up on you old man and you're 30 years old you right. know <laughs> so i retired when i was 37 so i've been going through that for like six seven years you know you just knew you just knew you were, you didn't want to be a detriment to the to the unit the team the mission you tried harder you used every bit of wisdom um, and every trick in the book, just again, just kind of like the sports analogy to, uh, hang in there and participate and perform and contribute to the same level. But at some point, you know, you you can't do it. So when I decided that it was time, I had a parachute accident. There's some other things that, uh, moved me in that direction. I didn't have a clue what I wanted to do. Not a clue. So I prepared to go into law school. I took the LSAT exam and a guy came in that I knew that had, that had um, retired about maybe eight months before I was going to retire. Took me to lunch, talked me out of that, talked me into going into financial services. And I said, okay, sure. So that I, that's how I jumped into the managing money business. And I didn't know anything about the first part of it, which is I had to find clients. I didn't know how to find clients. I didn't know any rich people. I didn't know how to sell. So, you know, I was, I was kind of flat footed there from the very beginning. I was, little bit distressed that I didn't know how to do the main thing, which is find people with money, convince them to be my, my client. I mean, I, th- I had a pretty good idea how to manage it, but you have to have somebody, you have to have a client first. So yeah, that was a real struggle. And I think uh, you hit the nail on the head with the, the elite, the elite soldiers or any, any soldier really, once you leave or sell or once you leave service, it's like leaving a brotherhood behind you. You kind of run into a wall in the, like most of us don't plan for what the next step is because you're going to do it until you collapse. And that's kind of what you were, you were seeing when that kid ran past you when you were 30 and you still had seven more years in the tank to go till you hit that retirement number. And I'm sure that was an eye opener. And uh, you really wanted to just reach back and throw him down and get, and get past him anyway. But that was something that motivated me at the end of my career is always stay ahead of them young guys just to show them that I can do it. But I think that hurt me more because I was pushing an older body to do what these younger bodies were made to do. And that's why I have so many things now that are broken inside. Yeah. And the other thing is you, if you're a little slower, you're a little bit less uh, agile, nimble, et cetera, you're going to get injured more frequently. And so it starts to kind of cascade on you a little bit. Um, Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a a long wind and everything, but you know, you, you may have bandages and you may have, uh, a knee wrap and all that stuff, but you're still keeping the pace. You're not holding anybody back. But the worst thing, you know, in, in that business is that at some point 
you do do something that that impedes the progress of the team, whatever, and you get a little side look from somebody, and you're like, oh, crap. Because, you know, they're basically, they're, they're respectful, especially the older you are and the more senior you are and the more, the more wisdom you've, you've gained. There's a huge amount of respect for that. Right. But there's zero respect if you can't play the game and, and do your job, right? You can't, if you can't pick up that, that defensive lineman coming in and take out the quarterback, I don't care how great a guy you are, <laughs> you're, <laughs> not not doing your, yeah. you're not doing your job, you know? Right. We're going to bring somebody in that can do it, you know? So exactly. there's, a, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that peer pressure to perform, peer pressure to, uh, to improve all the time. And then when you transitioned into the, to the corporate side, like you said, you couldn't, you didn't know the first thing about getting that client or reaching out and saying, Hey, come help. Let me manage your, your finances or this or that. How did you finally get that aha moment? And this is how this works and I can do this. Yeah. And I think this might be instructive for your audience because I give a lot of transition presentations and I did one at the seal heritage center not too long ago <clears throat> to people in the, in the naval special warfare community that were either getting out or about to get out or just, just left the service, not necessarily retiring, but you know, they may have been four years, eight years, whatever. Everybody has the same questions. Everybody has the same concerns and, and anxieties to some extent. And what I tell them, cause I've, I've had time to think about it and boil it down. What I had to come to grips with is I went from being, in a top elite organization surrounded by superior performers, all mission focused, all committed to doing the best job they could, all individually committed to improving personally and professionally. And then as a team committed to improving as a team professionally, that's an incredible environment, right? And then you step out of that and that's all gone. And you don't, you forget how much of that is actually a support system. Not, not a support system like you're sad and you need somebody to hug you. A support system like those pillars of that peer pressure is what kept you sharp and kept you on edge and kept you moving forward at a, at a high speed. And all of a sudden I'm sitting in a, in a room staring at a computer wondering how I'm going to find a client. And I'm by myself. So I uh, went through kind of a, a soul searching period. You know, I, I reached out to a couple of family members that were salesmen. And I realized, okay, so there are people that know how to do this. There are people that can mentor me. I called one friend of mine who was a former uh, Force Recon Marine who ran a car dealership in Virginia Beach. And so he sent me this VHS tape. I mean, it was this big, big book that you opened up and it had like a whole bunch of tapes on one side, a whole bunch of tapes on the other side. And it was how to sell a car. And it was the training, a sales training program for his salesman. Oh, wow. And it was, it was, literally a guy you know it was like a 1978 you know thing i mean it wasn't that far back when i retired but wearing a checker jacket telling you how to you know meet people greet people you know you know features and benefits and how to you know and i'm like okay so i i, I watched the whole thing it had nothing to do with what i was gonna have to do i was gonna have to do concept selling and sell me as a, a trusted advisor but i listened to people gain mentors and i started to realize here's the problem my ego was in the way. I thought that, you know, if you, you rise to a certain level, you stay at that level or move on from there. But if you jump into a different profession, completely a different profession. Now, if I'd gone to the government and worked as a ex-SEAL doing things that SEALs were good at, it wouldn't have been that same kind of thing. But going into a completely different kind of industry, I should not have been expecting that I was going to be at this level. 
what I should have thought is, if I said I want to be a NASCAR driver, it would have been ludicrous for me to say, I'm going to be a top NASCAR driver on day one. I would have said, I have to learn how to do all this stuff. And that's when it clicked. That's when I realized I have to be an apprentice. And I use that term a lot in in articles and in these presentations. You have to decide, I'm going to be an apprentice, whatever I want to do. You want to own a restaurant? Go in and get a job as a, as a waiter, as a busboy. Try to learn how to be a cook. Do it for six or seven months. Do it for free. Find somebody that, you know, learn, learn the, the, the restaurant business from the ground up as an apprentice. And you may find you don't like it. You may find it's not for you. You may find I can do this and I can do it better. Go and talk to different restaurant owners. You know, go around and soak up the information. Be humble. Maintain that apprentice mode. And what happens is you get to a point, and I don't care what the profession is, you get to a point where you start to get a grasp of how they bake the bread, how they do what they do. And you can start you can start to apply that work ethic, that drive, all the things that you had in the military now become a big you know, force for change, for positive change. You become a leader, whether you have a leadership title or not. People start to get galvanized by your energy and your focus and, and your your positive, you know, kind of mission, mission um, perspective. But you have to learn how to do it first. Right. You, you know, nobody's going to bring you in into a carpentry shop and say, OK, you know, make this thing for the Smiths. You know, you don't know how to you don't know how to make a bed or a, or a dresser. You have to learn it before you start to become better at it, before all these other attributes and characteristics that all these positive things that you gain from military service kick into gear. And then that that's what catapults you, whether you're an individual business owner or you're working for somebody. That's awesome right there. And I think I, when I started this podcast, I started as a, just basically an idea I had because I had eight extra hours a week. So I said, let me, let me do something with those eight hours that I'm not doing something with. Let me, let me do this podcast thing. No idea what I was doing when I started this. I was recording in my Jeep as I'm driving and Talking to talking to guests as I'm driving, and then I said, "Oh, maybe I should get a microphone." So now six microphones later, I have this guy right here. But I've learned this by trial and error, and like you said, mentors and just reaching out to people. What am I doing wrong? Look at my stuff. Tell me what's happening. And they they give you feedback, and I take notes and just put that military mindset back into action and try to make this the best thing I can for others, so that I am advocating for veterans the right way, and I am bringing the best people on, and having you on here, and and providing a platform for you to tell your story. Yeah, I mean, it, there's a learning curve. You can shorten it by self-study. You can short it, self-study before you get out by talking to mentors before you get out. You know, get a, get a bit of a, a lead on the thing. All those little milestones that you have to check off on that learning curve. There's a few you can leapfrog through mentorship and through study, but there's a few you have to actually get in there, you know, and do the groundwork. You have to get in the trenches and and see and feel and smell what that business is all about. And And the other, you know, value in that is you may want to be you know a roadie for a rock band or you may want to be a long haul trucker or you may want to be an airplane pilot uh, but a commercial airplane pilot but once you start to get into it and see what it's all about you may say you know i thought it was something different my perspective was from a movie or from some story a guy told or whatever and this was really this this job really sucks you know um or you may say this is exactly what i thought even better than i thought but you get to a kind of a go no go point where you got enough information, enough mentorship, enough insight, enough tactile kind of dirt under your fingernails um, to say, okay, this is it. The other thing is it's not wasted time. You do that for one or two years. That's your new day job. You're bringing in a paycheck and you realize that's not what you want to do. And if you need a paycheck, 
start the whole apprentice study training all over again for whatever your new target is. Get to the point where you're ready to make the transition, jump into the next lane and be humble, apprentice, and move up. You don't get to a master class, you know, right away. And I'll I'll ask guys, you know, if they're a mixed group of people that weren't all SEALs necessarily, I'll say, you know, somebody tell me how long did, what are you, you know, I said, oh, you're a pilot or you were, you know, you were a uh, air traffic control guy in the, in the Air Force. How long did it take before you were considered a, a master at your craft, before somebody would put you in charge of air traffic controlling of planes or put you in the cockpit and let you fly all by yourself and do a mission? And they usually come back and say either two years, three years, some cases, four years. You go, okay. So why do you have these expectations that you're going to get out of uniform to go be a software engineer or something? And it's going to happen in like four months. Or you're going to get out and go into business and you're going to become a manager and they're going to give you a corner office. Right. Well, that doesn't make any sense if you think about it. And they all go, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, yeah. And the, the, the timelines are, are skewed. I'll, I'll ask people, how long do you think it takes to become an engineer? How many years? Show of hands. How many? Then I'll ask somebody, how old are you? So I'm 38 years old. And I go, so how long is it going to take for you to become an engineer? Because if the, if the person has a degree, like I did a Naval Academy alumni one time. So he had a, he had a degree. So say three years. So how old are you going to be? Well, I'll be like 42, 43 years old. I said, too old? You ready to retire already at 43? So you can become an engineer at 43. You become a software writer in 18 to 24 months. You can, you can, all these things are achievable if you just stop thinking about you have to stay equal to or, or go higher than you were at the last rank in the military and pay prestige or title. Exactly. I think it comes down to managing expectations, which is what I think you're what you're trying to for uh, uh, show them by telling them stories. And if they come out and think that they're going to run, like you said, the NASCAR uh, analogy was probably the best one. You're not going to go right into the cup and beat Kurt Busch or Kyle Busch right away. You're going to have no. to start. Down. You're going to start in the trucks or even in ARCA before you move up and get noticed and get your bumps and bruises and crash a lot of your cars and trucks before you can move up. And you have to learn that you have to you're probably gonna have to fall down a couple of times and keep getting back up and and stack those victories, like we say here, to keep moving forward. Even if you wanted to be competitive as an amateur racer in any amateur downhill skier, I'm not even, you know, it doesn't have to be NASCAR or the Olympics, even to be competitive in an amateur competition, you'd still have to go in, learn from scratch, become an apprentice have somebody tutor you and coach you to the point where you're actually competitive because everybody else has been doing that for X number of years. And you just walked in and said, Hey, I want to be one too. Well, you gotta, you gotta put in the time and put in the effort, but it's all doable. I mean, in this country, pretty much everything is achievable. It's all out there. You just, and, and the information these days is incredible. You can get access to everything. You, you could watch a webinar on how to cook stew five, five, 500 different ways and in a hundred different, a hundred different languages, you know, I mean, you can do that for a whole year and become the stew master genius if you wanted to be that. I mean, it, it's just incredible the opportunities out there. Definitely. Now, you were like your career after the military was successful. You became a accounts manager. You managed with the, the, the Bank of Switzerland. What are the types of management you would uh, like to describe? Uh, I know in the military, we know strategic and tactical. What other uh, management would you say would be good to learn for someone as they're coming out? Well, I think that I define management and, and leadership in my first book, Be Nimble, to, to make kind of clear what my point of view is. So I think managers, 
and management is about taking care of the status quo, systems, processes, and the people. So the people are going to operate according to the resume and any additional training you gave them. The system's going to operate according to the the uh, expectations in the manual and the same thing. The processes are going to operate the way they were designed to operate. What managers do is they keep all that humming and buzzing and, and whirring and all that working. When something gets disconnected, it's usually something minor and they either go to HR on the talent side or they go to the manual or the instructions or to the troubleshooting guide if it processes and systems and things. Managing is maintaining. Leadership is really what you need when something collapses, when when something is a calamity that shuts down operations, that completely throws you off your game in a big way, with, whether there's a financial uh, negative outcome or some other kind of negative outcome. So you have, you have a company that provides you with raw materials to build whatever you're going to build or make when produce whatever you're going to make. And that one company has a fire and destroys all of your inventory. And you've got all these people that have bought this stuff and you're supposed to assemble it, build it, whatever, and then ship it to them. And now they're, they're mad. So they stop canceling. They start canceling their orders and all of a sudden everything goes falls apart. In that situation, the manager doesn't have very many, I guess, weapon systems to bring to bear because the manager is responsible for everything going right for all those little blocks and, and steps and everything to be there. You need somebody who steps up as a leader and say, okay, how are we going to, how are we going to do this differently? We can't do it the way we did it before. Can we find another supplier? Can we find a supplier in, in this state, in this town, in this country, in this region? Do we, do we go to Canada? Do we go offshore? Until our primary supplier gets back up online. We have to reinvent and rethink the way we're doing things because the way we were doing things that we were managing and maintaining just had a, a major failure. And, you know, it doesn't have to be as big as like a pandemic, but the, a pandemic brings out the leadership demand because when everything starts falling apart in multiple ways, if you don't do what I just described, a manager is going to sit there and say, well, the process doesn't have an answer for this. The system wasn't designed to, to deal with this. My people weren't trained to handle any of this. And then they look at, they stare at, you know, stare at the problem going, now what do I do? So, yeah, I, I believe that there's two different two different categories and they're distinct in the way they're applied. Obviously, if you were in the military, you got past, you know, E4. I don't care what your job was or what service you've been taught or you've been exposed to some kind of leadership requirement you've led. And anybody in the military would know the difference between managing a schedule and leading guys that are pissed off because the plane that was coming to pick them up after a six month deployment is going to be four days late. You know, there's. There's all kinds of different, you know, your emotional IQ related to your leadership experience in the military. All those things can be applied, but not in the day-to-day -day operations of management. They really, really, the bonus is when things start to fall apart. Now, you may be part of a line group that, that are doing things and something collapses, whatever, and you're not the leader by pay or by, by title. But you know, I tell you, nine times out of 10, a, a military veteran in that situation Turns around, looks at everybody and goes, come on, guys. You know, rallies the troops, gets, every, gets everybody to see the positive side of this. Stop whining about it. If you can't change it, then don't worry about it. You know, we're, we're going to figure this out. And that's leadership. And that can be applied at the tactical level, the operational level, and, and at the strategic level of business or nonprofit business or government. It doesn't have to be a military context. 
Awesome answer right there. And you you brought up your first book. Um, looking on your website, there's four books on there. Uh, be nimble on one end, and then be visionary. Visionary on the the other book end, which will come out January first, I believe, in this coming right. year. So, and your two books in the middle are those uh, fictional those, books. Uh, yeah, those are actually two series. If you go to MartyStrongBeNimble.com, I have nine novels. Okay. And there's four novels that are time, uh, the Time Warrior sagas. They're time travel, but they're kind of like the warrior ethos kind of thing just in a time travel science fiction uh, context. And then there's five SEAL novels. The, the fifth one just came out this year in January. It's called Kandahar Moon. It's about the the fall of, of the U.S. and Kabul and all that. But it's a novel. and it's But it's, it's topical and it's got all the real information and everything while the characters go through what they go through to try to wow. get out of there. But uh, I do those and uh, all the proceeds of my novels go to the the SEAL Veterans Foundation Outstanding. To, su to support work on PTSD and TBI. I think the first book was around 2017. So I do those for fun. Um, they're in Audible. They're, I mean, they're in all kinds of different formats. And uh, and they've been doing really well. I mean, eventually, if you do a series and people like the first book, it tends to help feed the whole thing, right? Right. It feeds the family there, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then the other two are, are not – they're uh, – Essentially, for my for-profit books, they're my they're my business books. Being able to be visionary, and both all this is on Amazon right now, and uh, of course, then go through your website, MartyStrongBeNimble.com to find them as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How did you know that you could be a good author? I mean, you went from a kid that got sent from Nebraska to back to to roughing in Hawaii with your dad, your mom kicked you out of the house. So obviously, there was problems with maybe in school, maybe just attitude as a teenager, but come back out of the Navy and now you're writing books and what was, was there an influence or you just knew you, you had some, something in you? Well, both my parents were, were really crazy readers. My mom was a fiction reader. She was romantic novels and mysteries and things like that. My dad was, a, he had a, a degree, uh, but he was a kind of one of these self-learning kind of people. He had a big library. He read everything. He read poetry he read books on philosophy he read books on russian history all kinds of crazy stuff and he would push on me here read this book you know here read this book of mormon you know when i was like 12 years old um okay now read this okay read this and he would give me stuff here here's spinoza he's a philosopher read that and then six months later say here read this this guy's name's aristotle he's different than spinoza and i'd be like struggling trying to get through these books but what i realized is one i, I love to read fiction and the more you read fiction the more your mind is comfortable creating fiction and you understand characters and you, you basically it's like the quack like a duck rule when you write bad fiction you realize this is really bad so you start working on it because you've read so much right it's like bad music and good music on the um on the non-fiction reading i became comfortable with reading things that weren't fun to read but by the time i got you know into high school where i had to start studying and the textbooks and things didn't scare me i could i could rip right through textbooks because my dad had forced me to do that as a discipline from like 12 years old on it was part of my i got allowances for for reading those books wow. but i had to do i had to do like an oral book report back to him or else you know i didn't get the money um it was a good allowance though it was like twice what i would normally get for like mowing the lawn or something so he he knew what he was doing um yeah so you get all that and then i then i was a technical writer in the navy i was comfortable writing uh when i came out of high school so that trait and anybody in the military to tell you this if you can either draw or write some officer figures it out and they end up trying to use you you know as a 
as a writer or doing something. So I ended up doing a lot of writing, even as an enlisted guy, mostly intelligence reports and things, working with the officers, getting a lot of critiques, getting a lot of, a lot of um, mentoring corrections, you know, and so I finally kind of got into the rhythm of outlining and putting my thoughts down. When I became an officer, I was a better writer than the other officers because I had that experience. And so pretty soon I'm writing strategic white papers, you know, for the Admiral in charge of all the SEALs. And I'm, I mean, it was just, the, the better you were, the more they used you, the more they used you, the better you got, the better you got, the more they used you, you know, it, it's kind of like that. So by the time I got into the Navy, I really thought someday I was going to write a novel, I, you know, and it was one of my bucket list items. So when I actually sat down and did it, I was really surprised how easy it kind of flowed and that the heart, it was harder to write the business books Yeah, because the business books are kind of like, it's, it's like, uh, it's like, what do you want to put in the high school yearbook that, you know, everybody's going to look at for the next 40 years? What, right. what cool thing are you going to put in there? Everybody's going to see what you think about a subject and it's going to be attached to you and forever. And you're either, you know, a genius, pretty <laughs> smart, not too bad, or you're an idiot. And you're sitting there thinking this the whole time you're putting every word down, you know, wait, no, no, I don't want to say that, you know? So we're, we're the, the fiction stuff. Who cares if Bob turns left instead of right? Who cares if he's got his gun on his right hip? Instead of, nobody cares. It doesn't you know? matter, right? No, there's it, no pressure. Right. It's just fun. It's good. It, a release yeah. to when writing. So it's awesome. Yeah. Uh, you said you, you your proceeds go for your two fiction series go towards the Navy SEALs Foundation uh, for PTSD and TBI. And uh, a show that's on TV now, I'm not sure if you watch it or what your thoughts on it, the SEAL team, they yeah. actually they actually bring up a lot of actual things that are happening with the TBI, with PTSD. And the yeah. season finale this year, actually, uh, it caught a lot of people off guard with the, the lead character coming out and saying, I do have TBI and I've been living with this. And everyone came in and his support of him saying everything that was wrong with him. Is that something, I you know, when you, when I was in, I was probably, uh, it was almost a voodoo to come out and say you had any issues as a leader. I'm sure you witnessed the same thing as you were serving. Is this a, a happy way to do it now? I think that I didn't understand the kind of um, the lead character. I, I, I didn't understand that, you know, Bravo one, whatever. I didn't understand how he was harping on it towards the end of the, the, the last season. And I thought, okay, you know, get over it. I mean, right. and then, but he didn't. And then when he said, you know, he's, he's getting the Navy Navy cross and he makes a speech Right. I don't, you know, I don't deserve it. And this is, I'm, 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 I'm basically, I'm tainted goods. I, I put people in, in jeopardy because I'm not right. And I thought, okay, well that's, that's really good TV, but would anybody ever actually do that? Right. But then when they did the actual final scene where all those guys came up and they all said, you know, I have this, I have this, I, I went, what a great way to set that, that ending up. Right. Because that ending was such a great commercial, such a great public statement, you know, for a TV show to make. And anybody that's been in the military around military guys and everything, and I don't care what war, going all the way back, everybody's had a father that wouldn't talk about World War II or Vietnam or, or Korea. They all had that same stuff. And you're right. You didn't talk about it when you're in. I don't think guys talk about it that much now when they're in. But the show kind of gave the characters the ability to say what they might not say in reality. Right. Which is what's really happening. It's like, just pull the veil away a little bit about what's happening as, as all the individuals in that final scene, you know, it wasn't one guy, it wasn't two guys. It was everybody exposed 
to that level of risk nonstop. And you can't fire everybody. So. Yeah. I, I thought, I thought, I thought it was brilliant. And um, yeah, but you're right. Most, most of the people I know that have any kind of symptoms from mild to extreme don't want to tell anybody it. And, and, you know, if you, if you have a banged up knee and you're kind of walking around with a little bit of a limp and somebody walks into a ready room or something and says, Hey, the ops officer wants to talk to you. You go down there and said, I'm going to send four guys down to El Salvador to help lead a, a training team to train, you know, a bunch of commandos or something. Do you think you say, well, I've got a banged up knee. You know what you say? Hey, no problem. Got it. When are we going boss? You never tell anybody because you want to, it's like, you want to play, you want to be on the field. You want to, you want to, you want to suit up. And that's, you know, the only time it, it gets really bad is when you know you absolutely can't do the job or you can't, you know, suck it up and, and gut it out. And then you have to go tell somebody, but you hold back. I remember when, when my, I had my back injury from a parachute jump, I was concerned that if I went in there and, and had somebody really look at it, they might kick me out. And I had the, the, the accident was, I guess I was probably two and a half years away from retirement. And I didn't know anything about medical retirement or anything like that. So maybe, you know, maybe that had changed my mind. So I, I'm asking friends, you know, what, what's the best thing to do? And the medic said, go find a chiropractor, see if they can help you relieve the pain. So I go, go through a bunch of different um, locations. And I finally set up with this one chiropractor shop. And every time I'd go in for my appointment, the room was filled with like either military guys or firemen. Right. And I'd say, well, what, you know, why, you know, why are you here? Because if this is a fireman, right? I'm asking him. He goes, well, I'm here because if I tell, tell the guys at the firehouse that I, I can't, you know, I have pain or I can't, they'll, I'm off. They're done. We were all there for the same reason. We were all there trying to not let our bosses know. It's <laughs> like a secret club. That we're in pain when we're carrying a hundred pound pack or, you know, all the gear that a fireman carries. Right. Yeah. Interesting. But yeah, I remember that. I remember that moment. We were all in there like, you know, we're going to keep the job, man. We love doing what we're doing. Got to keep this on the side. No one needs to know about this. Definitely. So, yeah. so Marty, what, uh, besides your website, is there any other place where people can reach out to get in touch with you to either have you on their show or just talk to you about your, your journey and uh, leadership and stuff like that? Well, the, the website's the best place because there's, there's, uh, you know, my emails on there, there's contact information. Um, I'm on LinkedIn and if you go and look up my, it's just Marty strong, all of my, not all of my, but most of my podcasts, a lot of my articles, uh, I've got an article coming out in fast company magazine, December 17th, uh, Harvard business reviews, looking at an article right now. And, uh, I was on national defense radio, um, uh, doing an interview. I post all those things on there. So okay. there's probably about 13 or so articles and a lot of it, especially the articles, talks a lot about what kind of skills from the military experience convey to the commercial experience. And it's not, you know, if you were good with a hammer here, you're good with a hammer there. It's, it's about the soft skills. It's about judgment, wisdom, decision-making, uh, the ability to create teams, lead teams, you know, uh, stress management, um, all those, all those character traits and all those elements that we all learned how to do and deal with to the point where we thought it was just part of the deal, but you know, it's act those are actually unique because they don't train people in high school or college to be leaders. Nope. There's no stress. There's no crucible of, of chaos that they 
mentally get resilient and figure out that, you know, this isn't that bad. Just take a deep breath and move forward. Nobody's teaching to be poised under fire. Nobody's the military is one of the only places and maybe some you know, like fire firefighters, especially like fire, you know, guys that are jumping out of airplanes into forest fires and stuff. They have to they get trained to do all this stuff. But for the most part, and in, in leading companies and things, I it, it stunned me in the beginning, but then after a while I went, well, why should they? Because they they aren't taught. And most companies, even large corporations, don't have any kind of training program for that. They expect when you advance to that level, be a leader. You got it. <laughs> Boom. And and what they do is they go, oh, I know how to be a manager. And then that moment comes where the managing stuff isn't working because they need to be a leader. Right. Yeah. Definitely. Well, Marty, thanks for taking some of your time and being flexible to come on uh, tonight uh, and to share your journey with the Misfit Nation. Happy to do so. Had a lot Appreciate of fun. You. Have a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. You too. Take care. Thanks for checking us out and being a part of the Misfit Nation. Don't forget to visit our website at themisfitnation.com. It's themisfitnation.com to catch up on all of our episodes and also to get some of that great Misfit Nation gear. As always, be humble, stay hungry, and keep hustling because we are 